You're listening to MarketScale Software and Electronics. I'm your host, Sean Heath, and today I'm speaking with the founder and CEO of Arcade City, Christopher David. Christopher, how are you today? I'm quite good, Sean. How are you? I'm doing very well. Now, do you prefer Chris or Christopher? You can call me Chris. Perfect. Okay, Chris. So do me a favor. Um, Tell me a little bit about the situation that you found yourself in that just forced you to decide to found Arcade City. Sure. Um, Let's see. I signed up to drive for Uber in New Hampshire in the summer of 2015. Uh, I was a web consultant at the time, was just looking to make some extra money. My fiance had a baby on the way, just kind of wanted some extra cash. And I was fascinated by this idea of the sharing economy. I was particularly fascinated by the battles Uber was having with these local and state governments across the US, across the world, where these laws that were written sometimes by and for taxis or having in mind taxis and more legacy transportation systems, uh, Uber was butting up against that because Uber created this technology-enabled platform, a new way of connecting riders and drivers. Uh, And it completely flew in the face of the types of regulatory structures that had been designed with taxis in mind. Uh, And so I had just moved to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I had just sold my car, partly because I was walking distance from downtown, but also partly because I knew that there was Uber available. And so when I saw in my local newspaper that Uber was threatening to withdraw, suspend service in Portsmouth, Portsmouth, if this new set of regulations were to pass, the city council uh, was, you know, arguably bowing to some of the influence of the very powerful local taxi companies in passing this new ordinance that would have been uh, this new set of ride-sharing regulations that would have been incompatible with Uber's business model to the point that they would just pull out. And I was so fascinated by this because I believe that companies should be, you know, given at least some reasonable leeway to innovate and make our lives better uh, without having to jump through a bunch of hoops and, and red tape. Uh, and so to see this happen was very um, alarming, especially in this kind of you know tech-friendly, supposedly tech-friendly city uh, on the coast of New Hampshire. And so I, I, I signed up to drive for Uber kind of out of curiosity. Like, what is this whole sharing economy thing? I, I want a front row view to this. Um, so I had some interesting experiences there tangling with some of the uh, local ordinances. Uh, if you <laughs> Google, like... Christopher David arrest wiretapping Uber. Uh, there's some awesome coverage of some kind of civil disobedience I did, you know, driving for Uber after this ordinance did pass. Uh, I continued driving, ended up organizing some drivers. And it was out of that that I had the idea to create Arcade City. There's a couple reasons. Some of it was kind of out of frustration of what the government, local government was trying to do. Some of it was out of frustration. A lot of it was out of frustration with Uber itself. Uh, I ended up driving um, also in Boston and doing that kind of full time for a, a period of a few months there, driving 40 to 50 hours per week. And the main kind of light bulb moment for me was when I realized that about 20% of my customers asked me how they could request me again. They liked my service that much. 
part of why I signed up for Uber and part of why it has the appeal that it does or did with drivers is because they talk this big game about empowering drivers to be entrepreneurs. Well, if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to have the freedom to be able to exchange contact information with your riders, have them be a regular of yours. That's going to make your life a lot easier. But with Uber, me doing that, me exchanging contact information with the rider is against their terms of service. Uber wants to monopolize that relationship with the rider because their whole business model is based on driver churn. 50 to somewhere between 50 and 90% of drivers at any given point are not going to be driving a year from now. They have an annual driver turnover rate. It's been reported as low as 50%, as high as 90%. That's because drivers are kind of hoodwinked and they realize after they sign up, they don't have all the leeway that they thought. They're not making the money that they thought. And that's partly because Uber interferes with things that are going to make a driver's job easier. If you're a driver, you want to exchange information with your contact, with your, your customers. <clears throat> so let me just kind of fast forward real quick. In Austin now, where we've built the world's first and only peer-to-peer ride-sharing network owned and operated by its drivers, we have 170 drivers, half are full-time, about half are part-time. Our top drivers show me a Google calendar where they've got their entire next two weeks booked up of pre-scheduled rides with their regulars who also pay them more. That's a level of job stability and security for them that is unprecedented. I couldn't take those customers away from them if I wanted to. Um, that is really living up to the entrepreneurial ideal. So that was kind of the, the trigger initially was Uber was not fault, um, kind of living up to its promises. There should be a more driver-friendly, peer-to-peer, flexible model that's able to really be by and for its drivers. You know, it's interesting that some people would try and classify you as, oh, he's just an, they're an Uber alternative, but you're not. You're a completely different thing. That's not an alternative. Uh, we are an alternative in that, um, you know, we, the, the wireless uh, telephone technology is an alternative to landline. It's, it's doing kind of the same thing. We're getting uh, people from A to B. Uh, but we are, I would argue, evolutionarily different. Our structure is entirely different. We are not trying to be this corporate, this rent-seeking corporation that is extracting value out of what should be a truly peer-to-peer transaction. Um, and and in kind of studying the successes that we've had, we've kind of realized that we're actually um, our model and how we've kind of positioned ourselves is in line with what some of the leading scholars on the sharing economy are saying is really the future of the sharing economy. Uh, the guy who literally wrote the book on the sharing economy, MIT professor Aaron Sundarajan, uh, he says that the sharing economy currently is in a transitional state. It's currently dominated by these large centralized corporate intermediaries who are interjecting themselves into what should be truly peer-to-peer transactions. He says that the future of the sharing economy is going to be shaped increasingly by decentralized marketplaces that are owned and operated by the participants themselves. He goes on to explain how blockchain technology is going to be an enabling technology um, in this and organizational models are going to be completely different. This is kind of part of the whole ongoing and uh, early stage kind of blockchain revolution that's going on. And so when we tell that to people, if they have had no 
kind of direct experience with what Arcade City has been in practice, or they've, you know, heard, haven't heard about us or studied about us, people can't really envision what that even could look like. A decentralized marketplace, own and operate. Well, how would that work? I mean, where would the quality come from? But, you know, for people who are active in our Austin network, the writers, it, it's very apparent. Those questions all have answers. And the result, arguably, is a higher level of service for the rider. It's more job security, stability, and drivers make more money. Everyone's winning. Um, so, so Arcade City, my, I, to my knowledge, is the only kind of player in the marketplace that reflects this new model. We've had a lot of kind of learning experiences and had to try a bunch of things. And we've been kind of, you know, bumping our head a little bit as we go along. But we, we have really figured out a way to turn this into a sustainable model and to the point where we're on track by the end of this year to become, I think, the world's first profitable rideshare company because the economics of this model are just so superior to raising billions of dollars in venture capital and spending a lot of it on basically bribing and lying to drivers. When you take care of people, word of mouth will spread it better than you know a bunch of ads will. Well, I'm going to go on record as saying that being profitable seems like a good thing for an entrepreneur. Sure. So, so let me throw in kind of an interesting, you're almost like a retro concept. You know, back in the day, if you wanted to buy some nails to build a barn, you went to the local blacksmith. One guy he was doing the work. If you like the nails that you got from him, maybe the next time you need nails, you went to him. If not, hey, there's another blacksmith two towns over. You've heard good things about him. That sort of word of mouth based on quality of service concept and decentralizing that turns it into a much more personal experience. Yes, and you're you're also basically empowering drivers to be able to respond to market forces uh, in their local area that may be particular to that area or they may be particular to that driver's skills. Um, for example, in Austin, we had a group of female drivers form their own little kind of big, what they call a pod of drivers. They set up their own kind of group and kind of channel for ride requests. Um, and that served a need that we kind of at the quote unquote corporate level had not anticipated, which is there are young ladies who get out of a club on 6th Street uh, here in Austin at 2 a.m. And they don't want to roll the dice and see if Uber's algorithm is going to pair them with a creeper driver who now knows where they live. That is an issue Uber has here and in a lot of places around the world where you hear about stalking of things that are unwanted. Well, if you give and, you know, a lot of these riders until they hear about Arcade City had not realized that they have a choice in that or that there is an alternative way of structuring that such that, hey, would you instead like the option of connecting with a friend of a friend on Facebook who's part of this community, locally vetted group of drivers and you actually know who's taking you to just be able to offer that level of choice to a rider and to have that in a way that we at the corporate level, we don't need to do anything. It doesn't cost anything to kind of decentralize these decisions out to the edge of the network. It's just a, it's a, I would argue, a superior organizational model for this. Now, I want to step out of the technical for a moment and step into the social aspect of this. It seems like the majority of 
quote unquote innovative companies over the last decade have all been driven by baby boomers, Gen Xers, who have a very strict traditional corporate mindset. But then you have the disruptors, and I say that in a positive light, that are coming onto the scene, coming into several industries, and they're all driven by millennials and younger who have a different social aspect. They have a different emotional uh, requirement for their service or their product that they want to either buy or sell. Can you talk to me a little bit about that sort of generational difference with regard to the way Arcade City is approaching this? Sure. I would say that the target audience for Arcade City and also for Uber and Lyft, at least when they started, was very clearly the millennial generation. Um, I would just qualify that to say that a number of our drivers in Austin are not millennials. Some of them are older. Um, but yes, the, the target audience is certainly millennials, people who are a little more willing to embrace technology to do, um, you know, things and, and kind of have that re being able and flexible and willing to kind of rethink, you know, traditional habits. But, you know, you, you see how as these markets develop, you know, Uber can then offer service for perhaps seniors or they're, you know, making a move into the freight industry and, and trucking and all these things where there probably are not millennials driving those trucks. But, you know, you, you, you start with kind of the people that are most willing to adopt the new technology. And as you get those economics solid, then you can kind of expand the service verticals elsewhere. And, you know, you run into these older drivers. The only reason that they've never done anything like this before is it's never existed before. It's never been an option. Maybe 20 years ago, they would have loved to have had an opportunity to do this, but nobody thought it was a good idea to even try it. Do me a favor. I know, you know, it's conventions time and everybody's going to trade shows and talking about the new this and the new that and the new service. And here's an idea without giving away too much. Can you give me a little bit of a peek into maybe some things that have caught your eye recently or on the, the near horizon? Um, things that we are looking at currently are how to combine some of the latest um, technical advances in things like machine learning, things like blockchain, um, concepts of gamification, and eventually uh, autonomous driving, self-driving cars, and how to kind of have these tools fit into a more decentralized model, one which is still, you know, still has a role for a, you know, quote unquote, corporate entity providing technical tools to kind of serve the marketplace. Um, but some in a, in a model that puts users first, where perhaps there is no, you know, assumption that can be made that all users are going to volunteer to share all data with some centralized corporation. Our whole philosophy is to decentralize as much of this to the edges of the network and specifically to empower local guilds, what we're calling guilds. These are our networks of drivers, um, basically driver cooperatives. That's what we have running here in Austin. Studying the success and dynamics of the Austin network have um, given us ideas about how to build technical tools that can help to 
scale this model out into other cities. That's our new mobile app that will launch in May with support for guilds, um, in addition to more of the kind of Uber-style ride-sharing features that typical consumers expect. Um, the, the, the exciting thing here is that instead of, let's say, for example, Uber, certainly they're doing a bunch of uh, you know machine learning and algorithms and learning from all of the data that they're collecting, but to come at this from a standpoint of how do we actually educate drivers? How do we actually take some of this data and put it into an actionable form that a local driver guild, as they're potentially doing some form of, you know, dispatch and trying to, you know, figure out and use their discretion about, okay, you know, here's where the South by events are going to be. And, and, and to maybe, you know, equip them with some, um, information that can be, you know, algorithmically processed or something, but, but to actually empower the edges of the network, the drivers, the, the guild leaders, the people who are making decisions about how to best provide service, how do we equip them with the kinds of data that typically are only kind of poured over by, you know, nerds in the, the central office in San Francisco, uh, but to have data collected and be uh, shared with people in a way that is, um, you know, usable and manageable for people. It just it's a, it's kind of turning the the corporate model on its head. Uh, we're we're not trying to build up a huge edifice at the center. We're trying to you know spread out and uh, empower uh, local individual drivers and then kind of uh, voluntary collectives of drivers. It sounds like you have actually achieved the goal of personalizing mass transit with the ability to scale that you mentioned through the use of guilds and going into larger markets. Uh, you've driven in in Portsmouth and there in Austin, not huge cities, but you also have personally experienced driving in Boston. And that place is crazy. The ability to separate a city or even a, a metroplex area into several small segments would allow you to be more efficient allow more personalization, allow uh, strengthening of the personal relationships between a driver and their customers. It sounds like you pretty much got everything figured out. Yeah, and there's certainly, um, I would say that most of the uncertainty is is around kind of the regulatory and insurance um, scenes. There's just a lot of change in those areas, but also, you know, change not happening enough. Now we are in some ways facing a similar challenge that Uber faced in the earlier days where, you know, right now you've got these statewide ride sharing laws in most, almost every state in the U.S. and around the world um, that are largely written by and for Uber. And they've got their own kind of uh, provisions, including anti-competitive provisions. Um, in New Hampshire, when they were uh, debating the statewide legislation for the ride sharing <laughs> i went to the um you know the hearings and i was sitting you know close to the, the uber lobbyist who's been working for you know the past year and a half to get this you know basically uber written quote-unquote model legislation passed and you know we had emailed in some questions to the legislators and they were kind of grilling the uber lobbyist like why is there a pro why is there a prohibition on cash transactions in your bill and the lobbyist said, uh, well, this is you know, a reflection of the ride-sharing industry as it is today, and there are no ride-sharing companies that accept cash. I said, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, my name is Christopher David. I'm the CEO of Arcade City, and we have drivers out there accepting cash transactions right now. That provision actually ended up getting dropped from the bill, and they you know, dropped the prohibition on cash. But you know, that was New Hampshire, and there's you know, however many other states where I'm sure that 
prohibition is in there. So there's some, you know, interesting balancing acts we're going to have to, um, you know, uh, experiment with between to what extent are we complying with the existing regulations? To what extent are we going to be trying to push the envelope in a certain way, similar way to, to Uber? But the reason that we were actually able to so relatively easily influence the legislation in New Hampshire was that at that point, we were kind of this like homegrown local entrepreneurs kind of arguing against the like big, you know, Silicon Valley corporate lobbyists in there. And if you can, if we can empower drivers to do have those similar conversations with their local representatives or regulators, legislators, um, or whomever, just generally having drivers in any given area empowered to and wanting to incentivize to take responsibility for what rideshare looks like in their area is that's vastly more empowering and beneficial both for the riders and the drivers and arguably the municipalities as well and and what we think that's going to create especially as we start to get more success stories is people are going to really come to appreciate the power of specialization like i mentioned uh, the pod providing service to, you know, female riders in a particular situation. We've had people already planning service, quote unquote, pods for um, members of the military, military based transportation to and from um, the handicapped uh, location based things. If you're on 6th Street, maybe there's just a person that's standing there, a representative of the local 6th Street Drivers Guild or something like that. You can go up to them and they'll, you know, summon you a ride and give you a coupon or advise you on where to stand or so there's just a lot of things that you know a typical corporate headquarters based in silicon valley is not going to be able to have that level of deep insight down to the local level in a way that a local driver who cares about their local area will um so i i, I just really think that this is truly the the future of the sharing economy our, our game the kind of game that we're playing now is just how best to scale this uh to your question about you know point about profitability earlier yeah we may we may want to you know raise uh you know an uber style uh uh, funding round and and you know grow faster but to to begin from a standpoint of having solid economics in place where look if we wanted to kind of you know turn off the 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 outbound marketing engine and just allow this to kind of grow naturally there's a, a lot of learning that we need to do about what does the evolution of this kind of peer-to-peer service network look like starting from one individual person to, you know, a few drivers to lots of drivers to, you know, we, we've kind of seen how to build a network that's, you know, as large as the Austin network where we have about one or 2% of the Austin's rideshare market. What does it look like to grow beyond that? Um, and then how do we replicate that in, you know, every or allow drivers to replicate that everywhere in the world? Uh, you know, exciting problem sets that we're taking on and definitely stay tuned. Well, it sounds like you have definitely found a way to not retire for the next 30 years. So I'm going to give you a piece of advice. Get a nap every once in a while. It'll do wonders for you. Thank you. And I wish you continued success. Today, I've been speaking with the founder and CEO of Arcade City, Chris David. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time today. I look forward to seeing you soon. Sean, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, go to marketscale.com slash industries. And if you have a chance, subscribe to the MarketScale publications for the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries.